0: Walking through Genesis really, really slowly. Actually, Uh, in the past, I've done a survey of the Bible and gone through Genesis very quickly. But I thought, you know what? Let's just take the opportunity to 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 meditate on Genesis and enjoy it. So you can open up to Genesis uh, chapter twenty-one, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about salvation uh, tonight again, which is a big biblical word: salvation. But I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear that word. What comes into your mind when you hear the word salvation? That's a good teacher question because you can't really get it wrong. What comes into your mind? I can't say no, that didn't come into your mind. What comes into your mind? What's that? Rescue? Rescue, yeah, that's a, a, a great way of describing what salvation is. Any other words besides rescue, deliverance, any other ideas? Exodus could come into your mind. That's the great salvation event in the Old Testament. Jesus. Jesus. Oh, I like it. Nice. Um, Would you say that this is a subject that most people would say they are interested in, salvation? Now you're thinking of Christians. Hopefully most Christians would say they're interested in salvation. But how about um, people that you just talk to um, on the train? If you talk to people <laughs> at work, say most people you bring up the uh, idea of salvation, would they say they're interested in it or not? Probably doesn't not. They would say no, but I but they are too, you know, just more most people are interested in man-made methods of salvation. So technology is a a form of salvation that a lot of people are looking to right now. Um, Money is a way of people trying to save themselves often. When we open up uh, Genesis, we're talking about God's plan of salvation. And the first thing that we've seen as we've looked at Genesis is why we need it. And uh, the second thing we saw is that God's willing to save, but it's just not going to be through our own efforts. Uh, And that's basically Genesis 1 to 11. That's what those first 11 chapters are about. Genesis uh, begins by talking about the world and showing us the problem in the world and um, ends, Genesis 1 to 11, ends with man basically seeking salvation on his own, by trying to build this tower and establish his own kingdom and uh, being judged actually as a result. And Genesis 12 is how God's going to save. So Genesis 1 to 11 shows us why we need salvation, and Genesis 12 starts talking about how exactly God is going to save. And we know that it's going to be through a seed, a descendant of uh, the woman. And now in Genesis 12, we see that it's going to be the seed of Abraham. And we as we've been looking at Genesis 12 through 25 that's the story of Abraham we're getting all kinds of important details about exactly how God goes about saving people and the big one being that we've seen how Abraham is saved so as we read about Abraham he really is like a paradigm or a model of how people are saved in the Bible and uh one of the things we see is that he is not a great guy uh so Not an absolutely great guy uh, in that, um, well, for one thing, he allowed his wife to get married to another man uh, twice at his suggestion. So that's not, you know, great for your next elder in terms of uh, qualifications. But he was saved how? Uh, The book of Genesis makes clear that he was saved through faith. Um, Genesis 15, verse 6, is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible, and it's going to be repeated over and over again, and it says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God is going to save, and it's our job uh, to believe. And we've gotten some insight as we've looked at the story of Abraham about the importance of the nation of Israel. So Genesis 12 tells us that God has a plan to reverse the curse and provide even blessing for the nations, but he's going to do it Through the descendants of Abraham, and specifically, we know uh, the descendants of Isaac, so we're talking about uh, Israel. And um, we've seen that it's not gonna be Ishmael, Genesis 16, it's gonna be Isaac, it's gonna be Israel. But last week we started asking, what about the nations? God's gonna do this work in Israel, but what about the nations? And so we looked at Genesis 18 and 19, uh, which begins to answer that question for us. So we said that God's great promise to Abraham was about seed, was about land, and was about blessing. And as we read these stories, some of the stories are explaining the the seed promise. Some of the stories are explaining the land promise. And uh, Genesis 18 and 19 and, and a couple of the chapters that follow are helping us understand how God's going to work in the nations. And the first thing that we saw as we looked at Genesis 18 and 19 is that we've, we've got a problem in the nations, and that is that sin deserves uh, judgment. You remember there's like an outcry. God says uh, he, there's an outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, he comes down to look at it. God stoops down to find out uh, what is going on, it's just a picture for us of a great transcendent God who is concerned about the evil in this world, and uh, Abraham asks God a question, and Abraham's question basically is, you are judge, I understand that, you, you take sin seriously, but what kind of judge are you? He, uh, he says, um, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so at the end of Genesis chapter 18, he asks God, will you uh, destroy, destroy the righteous along with the wicked? And God uh, basically uh, says, no, Abraham, I, I, I'm a God who wants to show mercy. Um, I, for the sake, he gets all the way down to 10 people. He says, if there's 10 righteous in the city, I will not destroy it. And uh, God, in chapter 19 goes to evaluate Sodom, and what we see is that the nations deserve judgment. The nations really are are wicked. Um, And it was just a graphic, grotesque picture of human beings um, really at at their worst. And we saw their influence even on uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot. So Lot had left Abraham and had moved away from the Promised Land and moved into Sodom, And uh, as we look at the effect of Sodom on Lot, he's become a lot like uh, the nations as well, really, really um, unrighteous. And yet the angels rescue him, and we're told the reason why they rescue him in verse 16 of chapter 19, it's because the Lord is merciful. His wife, however, um, doesn't really want (laughs) to leave Sodom And uh, she is judged. And God pours out his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, and that judgment is fierce. And the section ends by pointing out why Lot was rescued. Verse 29 of chapter 19 says that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And so how did salvation work for Lot? It was God remembering his promise to Abraham. And that's a pretty important hint of how salvation in the Old Testament works. God makes a promise about a seed that he's going to send through Abraham, and Abraham is saved by believing that God is going to keep that promise, and the nations are saved as they uh, believe and trust in that promise as well. And because of Abraham, Lot and his family are rescued although they experience a lot of consequences because of moving away from Abraham. The next story was Genesis 20. We're almost in Genesis 21 now, but we saw that there was a similar question in Genesis 20 because um, in Genesis 19, uh, 18, Abraham says to God, "'Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just?' And here in chapter 20, verse 4, Abimelech, who is um, not a descendant of Abraham or co- really connected to Abraham, he asks God uh, something very similar. He says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? So Abraham asked God, Lord, are you going to judge the righteous along with the wicked? And he goes to Sodom, and there aren't any righteous, and so the, they are judged. Abimelech, however, is also part of the nation's and he has um, done something wrong in innocence. Uh, And even God says that in chapter 20, verse 6. He says, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, but it was still wrong. Abimelech had taken Abraham's wife for himself, not knowing that it was Abraham's wife. And so this could have had like terrible consequences because Isaac hasn't been born yet. And so if Isaac's not born, none of us are ever going to be saved. So that's like a big problem. And God disciplines Abimelech. Um, he closes all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. But at the same time, Abimelech is asking, when God comes to him, are you going to kill an innocent people? Are you, are, what kind of judge are you? Because I, I, didn't, I, it, this, I didn't know <laughs> that this was Abraham's wife. Are, are you fair? And um, God speaks to him and tells him, what to do. He says, I know you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and uh, you didn't know what you were doing, but it's still wrong. So what you need to do is, uh, is reverse, really, what you've done, and Abimelech uh, listens, and he honors Abraham, and everybody's healed. So these, again, I think are some pretty serious hints as we begin the Bible. Remember, the Bible's like progressive revelation, so it's like Not telling you everything at once, but like a teacher would do in a class, slowly giving you the building blocks so you can understand the bigger picture. God is um, progressively giving you information so that you can understand what kind of God he is and how salvation works. And what we're seeing is that God has made a promise to Abraham, and even when Abraham's not amazing, God's going to keep it. And those who believe God's going to keep that promise to Abraham are shown mercy. And Genesis 21, 1-7, to that's where we are now today, shows that that's a very good decision to trust God because, and, and to believe his promises because God is always faithful to his promises. So this is just a simple encouragement this evening, that God is always faithful to his promises, We are saved by believing that God is faithful to his promises to show mercy, and he's always faithful to those promises, even when it looks like he's forgotten. Um, He hasn't forgotten. And so in Abraham's life, we read these chapters fairly quickly, but there is a very, very, very long time where it looks like nothing is happening. But here, after all these years of, uh, of waiting... At the beginning of this chapter, we find God doing exactly what he said. So look at Genesis 21, verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which, of which God had spoken to him. So this is a story about the birth of Isaac, and we've been waiting for this for a long time, ever since Genesis 11, verse 27 where we were told that Sarah was barren. She wasn't able to have a child. And we've gone on journeys to Egypt. Uh, we've gone to war with Abraham. <laughs> we've we've uh, been through thick and thin with Abraham. And this promise hasn't been fulfilled until now. And yet what's funny about the story of his birth is that it's actually, if you look at it, if you look down at Genesis 21, it's kind of anticlimactic. And what I mean is, like, there's all this talk, if we're reading this story, if you're remembering how we read this story, there's all this talk about how it has to be Isaac, it has to be Isaac, like it can't be Ishmael, it has to be Isaac, and there's all this waiting, and yet the story of Isaac's birth is told pretty quickly, isn't it? It's just like seven verses, and there's not a lot about it really, and that's because it's like Moses is stripping away all the extra details to show us what he thinks is important for us to know. And what is it that stands out if you look down at verses 1 through 7? Let me read these verses, and you um, tell me really what stands out to you. I'll just read verses 1 through 3 to start. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. What, what, what stands out to you from those verses about the way he describes the birth of Isaac? Right. Right. So, by the way, when you're doing devotions in the morning or whenever you spend time in God's Word, you part of what you're doing is you're searching for reminders of why you ought to worship God and why God's great. And here we have one already, even though it's just a couple words. The Lord visited Sarah as he had, as he had said. The Lord visited Sarah, which is an interesting way of describing what happens, and it's like a supernatural act of God. And so this is something unique going on here. It's not the virgin birth, but it's an unusual birth. Um, Sarah's womb was dead, and it's like God resurrected it so that she was able to have a child. And then second, it's a fulfillment of a promise, because it says, as he had said, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And so the writer's trying to remind us that even though it's been all these years, this, this has happened exactly the way God said it would happen. And we find Abraham responding by obeying God. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah born to him, Isaac, which means he laughed, or he laughs. And he circumcised him the way God commanded. In verse 4, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. And then Moses reminds us just how impossible this is. Verse 5. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him, and that God's the one who did it, verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me, which I think is a really beautiful picture of where God's taking everything. Um, He's made a promise, God, that seems impossible to keep. There are lots and ups and downs, and just when you think everything's over and there's absolutely no hope, God does what he says he was going to do, and he's doing it this way to maximize the joy of his people and what God's done so that there will be laughter and rejoicing in the end and to make it clear that he is the only one who's done it. That's really the story of the Bible and the story of salvation. And Sarah makes it clear that God's done it in verse 7. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And what's kind of ironic about that verse? Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? God literally said that to to Abraham. God made a promise that everyone else thought was impossible, and yet he fulfilled it. He did what no one thought he could do. And Sarah says, yet I've borne him a son in his old age. And so that's an amazing, important story. Right in the middle of all this talk about the nations and salvation, we're reminded that God keeps his impossible promise to Abraham so that everyone would know he's the one who did it. And now Moses takes us back to the nations. So verse eight, he talks about Ishmael. So apparently Abraham throws this great party for Isaac. Verse eight, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day when Isaac was weaned. And that usually happened when they were about three years old in that culture. So a little bit old, actually. But Ishmael would have been like 16 or 17 at this point. And he's laughing, and Sarah doesn't like it, which is also kind of ironic, because she had just said, everyone who hears will laugh over me. And uh, now Hagar's doing exactly what she said, but it's making her angry. And again, that's just kind of real life, actually. But verse 9 But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing, which is the root from which we get Isaac's name, the same Hebrew uh, word that was used earlier when she said, everyone who hears will laugh over me. But it seems to be more like he's mocking here. Um, And he's not rejoicing that God kept his promise. Instead, he's mocking Sarah. And Abraham, and yet you notice that Sarah doesn't even say his name. What does she call him instead? The son of Hagar, the Egyptian. And she knows his name for sure. So this is a way of minimizing him. It's almost like the equivalent of, uh, I'm not even, even going to look at you or, or acknowledge, hardly acknowledge that you exist. And at the same time, we find the emphasis on that word Egyptian again, which I think should cause us to stop and wonder as we read, Because how would the word Egyptian have sounded to the average Israelite who was listening to the first time? Hagar the Egyptian. How do you think this book was written for the Israelites as they were about to enter the Promised Land? So uh, it wasn't very long, or the Israelites who were going to enter the Promised Land. So it wasn't very long after they had been delivered from what nation? Egypt, right? Since they were rescued from Egypt, and what were they, uh, what was life like for them in Egypt? They were kings in Egypt. No, they were like basically, actually, it's funny, this calls her Hagar the slave. They were basically uh, slaves in Egypt. So a pharaoh had even wanted to kill their children. And yet, of course, uh, some of the Egyptians had been kind to them. um, But you might wonder, what was God's attitude towards this nation, right? Uh, Hagar, the Egyptian, what is God's attitude towards people like that? Um, They had racism back then as well. (laughs) And uh, if you are part of a minority that has been oppressed and you're reading about that group there mocking your ancestor, you can imagine uh, perhaps what they might have thought. Sarah, certainly, she doesn't think very many good thoughts. Verse 10, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And so she won't even say Hagar's name. Twice she calls her this slave woman. And what she's doing isn't right. She doesn't want him to have any inheritance. And what's interesting is that's not even right in the Old Testament. So if you turn to Deuteronomy uh, chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. So Moses wrote this, and Moses wrote Genesis. But if you turn to Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17, God's really clear about this. He says, if a man has two wives... The one loved and the other unloved, and uh, both the loved and the unloved have borne him children. And if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who's the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion. Of all that he has, for he is the first fruit of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. Um, That's one of the ironic things about Genesis, actually, is that the the second child gets a lot of the um, rights of the firstborn. But in the Old Testament law, God is trying to deal with a bad situation here, and you see that it's a situation that's a little like Abraham's, where he has two wives and one is unloved. And the unloved one has a son first. And God says, in that case, you're not allowed. And the, the loved one has a son later. You're not allowed to actually give uh, the firstborn inheritance to the, to the loved son in the place of the unloved one. And so uh, what Sarah's doing and wanting Abraham to do is actually not right. Um, and I think the Israelite reading this for the first time would have been a little conflicted as they looked at Ishmael, um, because here's this person who's from a nation that wanted to kill them, but he's being oppressed now the way they were, and they know Sarah's attitude isn't quite right, and they may wonder, what is is God's attitude? Uh, We know Abraham's. Abraham didn't like it, verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But again, we're asking, what about God? And something strange happens in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. <laughs> Whatever Sarah says to you, <coughs> do as she tells you, for through Isaac your offspring shall be named. Which might make you stop and wonder is God affirming what uh, Sarah has done to Hagar and Ishmael and the Egyptians? And I think the answer is definitely no, because of what comes next. God's going to take care of Ishmael. But this is like a consequence of Abraham and Sarah's sin. Um, Because remember how this happened. It was Sarah really uh, oppressing Hagar, and um, the result was this very situation. And I think God is making the best of a bad situation, honestly. Sometimes When we don't trust God, even though God's going to be faithful and he's going to show grace and help us, our decisions have consequences and there isn't really a pain-free way out of them, unfortunately. But God is kind and he's made a promise to Ishmael. I don't know if you remember the promise, but it's back in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, This is what God says about Ishmael this boy we're reading about in Genesis 21, it says, he shall be a wild donkey of a man. Um, which just sounds kind of negative to us if if you called somebody a wild donkey uh, because we're not really big into donkeys. But what if I said a wild mustang? That would have a different picture. And actually this word for donkey here is is a, a, a little more like a horse than a donkey. Um, and this promise is actually emphasizing that um, Ishmael's gonna be free. Wild donkeys are not, uh, they're wild, they're free. And so Hagar's a slave, that's been said twice, even in Genesis 20, this, the slave woman, This slave woman, she's really in a terrible situation. But God promised her son would be free, and he's gonna keep that promise in this painful way. And he's gonna use even Sarah's sin, to uh, accomplish freedom for Ishmael. And it's going to be challenging and scary for Hagar and Ishmael for a little while, but God's going to take care of them, and he's going to give Ishmael an inheritance. Verse 13 of chapter 21 says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. And again, we're seeing salvation works through connection with Abraham and the promise God made to him. And Abraham obeys God, verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took a bread took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And actually that phrase is going to come up in the next chapter with uh, Abraham's other son, Isaac. So this is a pretty painful moment because Abraham uh, seems to actually have loved Ishmael and yet he has to send Ishmael away at God's command, and he rises early in the morning to do that. And in the next chapter, actually, we're going to see that God teaches Abraham something about faith, but he does so in a way that is is very painful, and uh, he kind of puts him in the same situation that he put Hagar, actually. (laughs) So Abraham, because of his sin, ends up putting Hagar in a situation where it looks like she's going to lose her son, and God, uh, the son that she loved, and God's going to do that, uh, test Abraham that way in the next chapter. But even here, this is a test, and he rises early and sends Hagar away, and she wanders in the wilderness. And so here what we have is a a person who's a foreigner, who's oppressed, who's in danger, and uh, God's actions seem a little strange here. He's made a promise, but imagine for her, it it wouldn't necessarily have felt like he was keeping it. And we wonder, what is God going to do? And it gets even worse in verse 15. It says, when the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept, which sounds similar to what Israel did in Egypt when they were oppressed, right? They uh, were uh, oppressed and they cry out to God, they groan. And how does God respond to, to this non-Israelite, this, uh, this Hagar, the Egyptian, the slave woman? Moses says in verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And that's uh, interesting the way God puts it there. I don't know why. Maybe you have a better understanding of why he says, um, because it's clear the verse before he says that Hagar is the one who is weeping and lifting up her voice. At the same time, of course, the boy is crying, but he doesn't mention that in verse uh, 16. And yet in verse 17, it, it doesn't say God heard Hagar. It says God heard the voice of the boy. And he answers Hagar. And I don't know if that's maybe just to assure Hagar and us that God is actually not just interested in her, but he's interested in her son, but he uh, reminds her of his promise that he's going to provide for them, and he does. God, it says God is with the boy, and he becomes an expert in the bow, and he lives in the wilderness and gets a wife from Egypt. And what's the point? If we go back to how God's saving, God's made a promise to Abraham, and he said he's going to bless the world through his seed. He's a righteous judge and sin deserves punishment, so he's going to punish, but he saves a lot on the basis of his relationship with Abraham while punishing Sodom because they're wicked. But then we see he saves righteous Abimelech, who uh, shows mercy to Abraham and in a sense believes what God says to Abraham. And here's Ishmael, who you would have thought Israel would have hated, but Moses shows us God's showing him mercy again through this promise he made to Abraham. And then the chapter ends with another picture that God's able to do what he promised he was going to do with Abraham and the nations in verses 22 through 34. Because um, God's kept one impossible promise, which was an old woman like Sarah having a baby. But almost as impossible as Sarah having a child is thinking that Abraham's descendants are going to become this powerful blessing to the world. So God says to Abraham, your descendants, Israel, is going to become this great nation, and I'm going to use them to to bring us back to the Garden of Eden, basically, to reverse the curse. And that, if we think about Abraham, when he was called, seems like an absolutely impossible thing for God to do because he's an old man. Abraham, we know him now, but he was a nobody when God called him. He was about 75 he ends up living most of his life as a refugee, and if you know what it's like to be a refugee or even just a first generation immigrant in a in a prosperous country, he was moving from a prosperous country to like mongolia basically he was he was moving to a nowhere to the moon you know he was got he was moving to a place that really had very little and yet God's saying your descendants are going to become a nation that changes the world. And that's a, that's a difficult promise to imagine God being able to keep. And yet what's happening here already in uh, verse 22, uh, it says, Abimelech came to, to Abraham, and Abimelech is a king. And he comes to Abraham with his commander. It says, at that time, Abimelech and Ficol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by that God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have, as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and, and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear, I swear. And this seems like, as you're having, you know, you're just reading your Bible, that seems like kind of a mundane story, actually, right? But this is where you, when you read the Old Testament, you really want to feel the sand beneath your toes, like you want to... You want to try to put yourself in, the, in that situation, and I know that's so hard because even when we read things like that, we read it in such a boring way, but imagine like a king and his military commander coming to Abraham like this, coming to this old man, Abraham like this. What is it, what is it conveying to us? Who comes to who normally? The lesser comes to the greater, right? Right you have a king and his military commander coming to Abraham and basically saying I see that God has kept his promise to you God is God is clearly with you and I'm coming to you because honestly I want I I know that you you you're going to become powerful and I I want you to promise me that you will treat my descendants me and my descendants well I want you to make a a covenant, he's looking to the future and he's saying, I see you. This is a pagan king, and he's saying, I see that God is going to do just what he said he was going to do with you, so please make a covenant with me, which is actually a kind of faith. I, I, Bimelech's here demonstrating faith, and even though God hasn't given Abraham the land yet, he has given him a lot of power, and we see that in verses 25 through 34. It says, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who's done this thing. You do not tell me, and I've not heard of it till today. Which tells us who's in charge of these wells. So you have to picture, like, how important is water to survival? It's, like, really important. We're so used to this stuff, but, like, in a, in a, a world many, many years ago, <laughs> When it's not like it is today and in like a, a, a wilderness, a dry and a desolate kind of location. How important are wells? You control the well. You control the water. You control the nation, really. And so Abimelech has somehow gotten control of this well, but Abraham is able to come to Abimelech and say that, that what you've done is wrong. And Abimelech is actually kind of like, I didn't know, I didn't know, I, you didn't tell me, I didn't hear of it till today. And so the point is that Abraham has power. This, he, he doesn't have any land yet, the way God's promised, but he controls the water, and he controls the well, which means he has a lot of power, and yet he shows mercy to Abimelech, I think because of Abimelech's faith. He doesn't go to war, he enters into a covenant with him instead. Says So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you'll take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Fikol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. That's kind of an interesting detail, right? Like, you're reading along, you're like, I wonder why it told me that Abraham planted a tree there. That's, like, very random. Um, But where do you normally plant trees? Like, say it's Arbor Day. Do you normally plant a tree in your neighbor's yard? No. No. And where does Abraham plant this? In Beersheba. He's just had this conflict over this well. And what's he saying? He's saying, this belongs to me. This is my spot. And so as he makes this covenant with Abimelech, it's like he stops and remembers God's covenant with him. God not only promised him the seed, but also land. And so now I think all these years later, after God's kept his promise about the seed, Abraham's planting this tree to say, I know, God, you're going to keep your promise about the land. This land is going to belong to us. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And what does he call God here? He says, he calls him the everlasting God. And that's the first time we see that word everlasting with God. Before that, it was the everlasting covenant. So if we think back to the beginning of the chapter, we see God's faithfulness to his promise, even when it looked impossible. He kept the promise about the seed. And then we see Abimelech recognizes that God's been faithful to his promise to Abraham. And now we have Abraham declaring his trust in God's faithfulness to his promise as he looks forward to what God's going to do in the future as he plants this tree. You're going to, I don't have the land yet, Lord, but you're going to keep that promise. And he bows in worship, which is a good picture of how we're saved. That's the thing. What do we do as saved people? God has sent the seed. He's done the impossible. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, who God promised, who is going to bring blessing to the nations. And God's done it in an amazing way. He's been faithful to his promise in Genesis 3.15 to send the seed who would defeat the serpent. But like Abraham, even though we know that part, we're not in the promised land yet. There's still a lot to God's promise that's not been fulfilled. And so what do we do now? We put our faith in his promise about the seed and we look forward to the future like Abraham because we know that God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. He's able. And we get a glimpse of that. He's going to glorify himself by judging the wicked, saving the righteous, and showing mercy to those who humble themselves and rely on the promise that he made to Abraham. And that's what, that's what we want to do. We want to be people who uh, trust that God is faithful because he was faithful to Abraham and he will be uh, faithful, faithful to us.